So let's get started. Um, so welcome back guys to Una. Uh, I'm Shivani Umesh, your uh, high school junior podcast host. And in this episode, we'll be discussing cancer, um, you know, having a career in oncology and how healthcare for the uh, LGBTQ plus population currently looks like. Um, so today we have an oncologist onto the podcast. Uh, so let's give a warm welcome to Dr. Uh, D-Zone. Um, Dr. D-Zone, uh, do you want to add anything before we begin? Um no, it's nice to be here. I'm always happy to help. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's get started with the first segment. Um, let's get to know you. Uh, in this segment, I'll ask some questions about you, um, you know, try to get to know you a little bit. So my first question, um, maybe what's the latest books that you read or, uh, you know, what was it about? Um, I'm actually still in the process of reading Stanley Tucci's um, Taste. That's, um, I, I sort of got into him over his CNN series, Searching for Italy. And it's a very nice book. Oh, yeah, that's an interesting read. I haven't heard of that one before. I'll, I'll try to check that one out. Um, so, so since we got to know a little bit more about you, uh, like your favorite reads, um, let's try to jump into like the heart of the conversation here and hear a little bit more about your journey into medicine. Um, so could you talk about like, you know, uh, maybe your journey from like being a high schooler to like where you are now, like what made you kind of want to get into medicine, um, you know, or, or decide like, you know, a career as an oncologist is like the career for you. Like what, what kind of like set you on this uh, career path? Well, you know, they talk about vocations quite a bit. Um, and, you know, a vocation is something that you were destined to do. And that certainly was my case when it came to medicine. I knew I wanted to be a doctor from very early, like almost in middle school. Um, and it was based on, um, you know, a, a show that was on when I was in middle school. It's called St. Elsewhere. Um, and it was about residents in medicine in Boston. And it just stayed with me. Um, and so that was my inspiration of understanding this is something my, that I might want to do. Um, and I grew up in the South Pacific, so an island called Guam. And so I had to leave home uh, for college. And I did that when I was 17. And I went all the way up to upstate New York um, and went to college. And, you know, I was never sure if I could get into medical school. Um, so even as a... Um, <clears throat> Uh, senior applying to medical school. I always had a plan B and I was either going to do religious studies as a postdoc or go into an English literature major or perhaps, you know, go into fashion and try to see, take my hand in Italy and, and <laughs> move there and try to, um, uh, you know, design uh, in Europe. But I got in to, um, through a school of medicine and dentistry in Rochester, New York. And I stayed there and struggled with the imposter syndrome the entire time. <laughs> uh, but it was there that I sort of decided that I wanted to do oncology. I thought I wanted to do surgical oncology and women's mm -hmm. cancer, so gynecologic cancers. But, you know, as a man in um, obstetrics and gynecology, I was thrown out of a lot of um, delivery rooms as a medical student. Um, and I, I couldn't blame anybody because, you know, it's a very 
you know, sensitive moment in a woman's life and the last thing they want to do is have a stranger in the delivery, certainly not a man. So Mm -hmm. that sort of turned me off on obstetrics and gynecology. And I went into internal medicine thinking I wanted to do oncology, went to Yale after that. And, you know, was fortunate enough to work with some really great people at Yale Mm -hmm. and, you know, did my fellowship at Sloan Kettering and that's sort of what happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, that, I mean, that's like quite a journey that, that you've been through um, all these different kind of like career paths um, or like, you know, potential things that you, that you were thinking about that you wanted to get into, like like fashion. I mean, I've never heard of a physician who was trying to consider fashion um, as a career choice, but like what were maybe some um, obstacles that you faced in your like residency or like even in medical school that like you could see other medical schools or medical students um, having and, and something like, you know, that, that any kind of advice that would like um, help them in, in their career path? I think the um, major issue I had is that when you go to medical school, there's going to be two types of students, ones that go through the entire process, you know, high school, college, med school without a break. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to have an older population that's actually taken time off, you know, done a career or pursued another passion and then came back into medicine. I identified with the older students in my mm-hmm. class. And they were not as competitive, quite frankly. They weren't concerned about, you know, being number one on a test. They weren't concerned about their rank. They had an idea of what they wanted to do with their lives with medicine. And it, and these are all just stepping stones. These are all just mm-hmm. things you need to do to get to where you wanted to be. And that perspective was really, really important to me uh, because I was, it was able to step out of this idea of being top in my class, which I think everyone who goes into medicine at some point felt like they were special that way, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, it was a humbling experience um, not to perform the top 5% in medical school, but at the same time, I had this core group of friends who were older, who had done you know, other things with their lives. And it was a grounding experience for me. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I I can look back on medical school and say, I enjoyed it because I had this group of people around me. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so that's kind of talking about like, you know, people more in like medical school who already like kind of sort of decided, yes, like this is the career path I want to go. I want to go into medicine. Um, what like just kind of in general for like maybe a high schooler who's just thinking about career choices, like they want to get into something science related, but don't exactly know if they want to take the time to go through like all the way through medical school or like dental school, or if they just want to do like a PhD or something like what kind of advice would you give to them to like try to explore? or um, different career paths? You know, what I did way back, even before I went to college, I volunteered in an emergency room. Um, And that was a really important experience for me just to see what um, physicians did during the time they were seeing patients, but also on their downtime. Um, It wasn't all glamorous, um, but, you know, you saw them interact with colleagues, and I could see myself doing it. I think that's a really important thing to try to see, um, and, you know, and, you know, shadowing a clinician work, you know, spending some time in a lab, you know, talking to people in the sciences and the STEM fields, mm-hmm. I think is really important, but also realize that, you know, life is going to happen to you and it's going to happen fast. And so much of it is just enjoying the point where you are now. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, looking back, the only regret I had, 
I have is that I didn't take time off, you know, between mm -hmm. high school and college and then between college and medical school. The only time I did take off was I took off a year between residency and fellowship and I worked for a year in primary care. Mm -hmm. um, and that was really important and, and quite helpful. But just getting these times where you kind of reassess who you are and what you want to be is really important, I think. Mm -hmm. And so, and I've like, I mean, I would say any kind of high school or anyone still like in some kind of form of education struggles with that, trying to get that like work-life balance. I know I do um, mm -hmm. <laughs> over this past year. Uh, I've, I've really tried to like ground myself, like at least take an hour away from like any kind of computer screens, kind of enjoy this on. Yeah. So um, what are maybe some strategies that you've employed or like, you know, stuff that you do to try to like get that work-life balance, um, especially being in the medical field, you probably have worked longer hours, but like, what do you kind of do on, on your downtime or, or like strategize so that uh, you can like kind of step away from that world for a while? Well, you know, I think that's why um, I do a lot of writing. I mm -hmm. do, I have several blogs that I've done, um, my social media, um, you know, activities are important ways for me to de-stress, but I also have a family, you know, and I think, you know, remembering what's important is always a really good idea when you're trying yeah. to do that. Um, you know, I, but this whole thing about work-life balance is interesting. You know, I will still answer pages on the weekend. I will still check in with patients on the weekend. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, medicine is, is something that doesn't um, really afford a nine to five lifestyle. There are ways you can cope for sure. Um, but, you know, it's a passion as much as it is an occupation. Yeah. Yeah. And I especially think like the career or like a career in medicine is definitely different from other aspects um, of, of like different careers. Cause like, you know, my parents, they work in um, their software engineers. So like they have like sort of a different dynamic where it's not like an emergency when they're needed. Um, and it's not like, you know, someone's life uh, and, you know, at their hands or something like that. So I definitely think that when you're going into that sort of um, medical sense that like, it's definitely harder to, to sometimes achieve that that balance or, or when it becomes, um, yeah, but it's, you know, the other thing that's really interesting about that is that it's, it's important to set limits as well. Yeah. For example, I, in my clinical time, I cover three hospitals. Um, <laughs> and you know, in two of those hospitals, I don't, um, have admitting privileges, meaning I can't see people in the hospital and bill for services, for example. So, mm -hmm if a, you know, patient that I am treating goes into the hospital, you know, I um, am unable to see them in the hospital. I'm happy to speak with them on the phone, but mm -hmm. I have colleagues who cover me oh. and that's important, you know, so sure I could <coughs> go mm -hmm. up to the hospital, see patients and not charge them for that. But time and effort is an important thing for us as we get older. And we yeah. do want to be fairly compensated for our time. It doesn't mean that you're not going to be there for that person, but mm -hmm. it's always important to set expectations. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point that, um, that you brought up. Um, I, I think like definitely me or like the younger generation or just like teenagers don't really like kind of think like where our time goes and like, we, we just want to like, you know, succeed or get ahead, but, but that's like a really good yeah. point. That you yeah. I up. think 
you know, I think with high school students, you know, I think there is this, there is still this pressure that I even felt that I have to do college, I have to go to medical school, and then I have to do, at some point, you're going to stop and realize I, you know, worked so hard to get to this point. And, you know, I'm tired. <laughs> you know, and I think it's really important to just some, you know, take some time, figure out what you want to do. And, you know, and again, doors open. And I think what's nice being in your 50s is that doors have closed. I'm actually okay mm-hmm. with that. Um, but, you know, there is life, even if you don't get into an Ivy League school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is life if you don't get into medical school. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of the day, you want to go where you see yourself being passionate and being happy. And mm-hmm. I've seen a ton of students who went into medicine question why why did I do this and I think that's just an unfortunate thing yeah yeah and I think that's what like it just takes time to to figure out like what what you really want to do what you are passionate about and trying to figure out your your goals in mind um Mm -hmm. so yeah um and so kind of like another question that I had was that um, we've kind of seen over the past couple of years, the prevalence of health advocacy on social media. You know, a, a lot of physicians, including yourself, have have come onto social media um, to share their opinion or their medical opinions and, and try to help people, um, you know, across the world. So how do you see social media as like sort of a tool physicians can use um, to better healthcare or like, you know, kind of better like uh medical facts or knowledge uh, across the country i think what we've seen with the COVID 19 pandemic is just this um it's a real public health issue with misinformation Mm -hmm. and disinformation the difference being you know something becomes um uh disinformation when there's um potential financial gain associated with the propagation of really harmful information. So Mm -hmm. I think it behooves all of us to sort of um, point people away from misinformation, explain why it's not not correct, and then pointing people to to better sources. But this movement around, say, COVID-19 and the vaccines, you know, is is incredibly organized. and they descend on people sort of on mass to sort of try to silence them. And we need to stick up for each other in the medical communities where that's happening. But mm-hmm. we also need to just understand that we do have that responsibility for people uh, beyond mm-hmm. just our clinics to, to make sure that good information is coming out. So I do see a lot of good in social media. Um, I think mm-hmm. it's a very fine line yeah. I see a lot of clinicians on uh, on social, particularly on TikTok, where you know they're comfortable um, displaying their anger, um, um, you know, displaying um, language that is not appropriate, quote professional in our field, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I think those are very conscious choices that one makes. So I am very clear that anything you post on social media last forever you can't easily take things back so you have to be very purposeful when you post and certainly i try to do that i'm posting a lot more about voting rights and ensuring that people get to the polls because Mm -hmm. i'm very concerned with the direction this country is taking right now um but i'm i'm very conscious and cognitive of what i'm either tweeting retweeting or quoting uh, and I have to be able to stand for what I've done 
And I okay. think that is a really good lens for all of us to, um, you know, to adopt. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I always see physicians keep on scrolling up on my <laughs> for you page and, and sometimes they really do um, provide really interesting facts that people don't know about. And especially in the comments, you could just see like hundreds of people that are just getting all this like new information that they really haven't um, heard about. And that just kind of increases a, a sort of um, that medical knowledge or like, you know, health advocacy um, across, you know, many people. So uh, let's talk about um, you specifically, like your profession a bit. So I did found out that one of your research interests is um, cancer and like the LGBTQ population. Mm -hmm. So um, and that's also what you uh, what we've often seen uh, that you talk about, like in your TikTok page. Um, so you often talk about like cancer uh, in relation to the LGBTQ plus population. So could you like expand on that topic? I don't think many people realize what healthcare kind of looks like um, for that population. So what are like maybe some problems or issues or, or that you kind of like typically see in this area? Well, when you think of the cancer um, trajectory, it really starts in the efforts we have as in public health to prevent cancer. So cancer prevention is a really important thing. This is where, you know, don't smoke, stop smoking, healthy lifestyles, you know, balanced diets, all of that comes in because all of these things can reduce your risks for cancer. But that's the same thing. You know, there's also early detection as part of that. That's where mammography, colonoscopy, pap smears, all mm. of those come in as well. Uh, and in those areas of prevention and risk reduction, we know and the data suggests that um, sexual and gender minoritized people do not get screened mm -hmm. to the same degree as those who are not members of that community are screened. So that's a really important thing. And the limited data show that there are differences in the incidences of cancer in these populations. For example, bisexual women are more likely to be diagnosed with cervical cancer than heterosexual women. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think what that points to are these um, issues related to bias that somehow if you don't have sex with men, you're not at risk for HPV. If you don't have sex with men, you're not, you don't need to be vaccinated, for example. Uh -huh. And those things are false. You know, you don't have to be heterosexual to be at risk for HPV. We also mm -hmm. know that, you know, with LGBTQ people that you know, if you look at it from an intersectional lens, some of several things come out. They're more likely to be not insured, more likely mm -hmm. not to have a primary care provider, and more likely to live um, uh, in poverty. Older LGBTQ individuals, more likely to live alone, less mm -hmm. likely to have children, uh, and more likely have sort of these limited support structures. So even intersectionally, they're at an increased risk of, of, of cancer as well as other diseases. Now, so they're not screened as much. Mm -hmm. There's limited prevention, particularly with a group of people where smoking is at higher rates, okay? But that's where it stops because we're not collecting data on when people get diagnosed with cancer. So we're not asking for sexual orientation. We're not asking for gender mm -hmm. identity. So there's this big black hole of what the cancer experience looks like, what their outcomes are, how they respond to treatment. We don't know. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but we know that post the cancer treatment experience, one of the alarming things is that where the sexual and gender minoritized community are not being afforded the same conversations. For wow. example, 80% are saying that they never were asked about fertility preservation, you know, mm-hmm. where that is astonishing to me that um, LGBTQ people of reproductive age are not afforded those considerations for fertility preservation speaks towards a bias Mm -hmm. that you know lgbtq people probably don't want kids so i'm not going to ask them and that's an unfortunate unfortunate uh, misconception yeah and i think they're just you know even not even looking at cancer but i think like you brought up um all these different points about like the lgbtq population and just healthcare, like some of the disparities they may be facing like um how currently i think in some states like lawmakers are trying to Mm -hmm. um ban or like kind of restricts um hormone therapy for those um trying to transition i think like that also just like kind of speaks to like not exactly the bias, but like, you know, how like politics sometimes end up coming into medicine and, and how that kind of affects that as well. Um, are there any other problems that, that you've seen that, um, or for the LGBTQ population that isn't in relation to cancer, just like sort of in general, like maybe even just like primary care that, that they're not being like provided? Well, no, I mean, I think one of the things that uh, we know is that this is also a community who's faced hostility. Mm-hmm. In, in medical fields, uh, more so in the trans community. Um, um, and, and it goes from not only just um, being unkind to hostile to almost physically abusive. And so mm-hmm. I think this does breed this um, um, uh, just, uh, you know, uh, they're not very trusting of healthcare at that point. Yeah. And they are loath to go to physicians because they're, there is this concern that at some point they're gonna be disrespected because so mm-hmm. many have. Yeah, yeah, and I, I completely do see that point. Um, and so kind of like also how you were talking about um, the political side of our country and where our country is sort of heading, um, you know, the, this past like couple months or so, um, I know that, you know, this month, uh, the ruling on Roe v. Wade was overturned. And so I was wondering, like, how do you see the ruling like affecting sort of the cancer population or even medicine in general? Um, uh, maybe like you know, I was just thinking of like the demographic of women who have cancer and become pregnant um, or like, you know, how do you, how do you see that overruling um, affecting medicine in general? I think it's going to be devastating. I think in places where abortion is no longer choice, you're actually not able to do standard of care therapy. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, someone diagnosed with curative cervical cancer during pregnancy has to be offered the opportunity not to continue the pregnancy in in hopes of curing her of cancer Mm -hmm. um if you take away that option you're taking away informed choice informed decision making so i think it's going to be really a devastating thing i'm worried about the care that is going on in the states where it's already restricted if not completely illegal um uh and i I think we we just need to reverse this 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 miscarriage of justice yeah yeah um 
and you know, many other physicians um, share your viewpoint as well, that uh, sometimes like, you know, aspects of medicine are being politicized in a way that like, you know, they shouldn't be, um, especially, you know, the past couple of years. And, and it's really just uh, kind of worsening our, our country, um, even even more in the aspect of healthcare. Um, perhaps from like a medical standpoint, how do you think uh, now that like, uh, abortion has kind of like um, the topic of abortion has been uh, given like over to state lawmakers. It's not really, um, it, it, you know, the overruling kind of made it not a federal issue anymore. How do you think that state lawmakers should maybe now approach um, health care after overruling? Um, what kind of like advice, if you had any, would you like give them? Well, I would want state lawmakers to listen to the physicians within their states. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this societies in obstetrics and gynecology and medicine, even uh, in the cancer field have been, you know, um, very clear that this ruling is going to kill people. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's, it's, you know, taking away the rights to half of the population will severely curtail healthcare in the states where they're considering these bans. I think lawmakers should listen to clinicians and stay out of the examination rooms and not assume Mm. that abortion is a form of birth control and not assume that women are purposefully killing off their babies in the third trimester. Mm -hmm. Um, You have to understand that every story is different and every circumstance is different. Um, And until they understand, you know, and I would hope that lawmakers would see there are a hundred shades of gray in all of this and that blanket bans are just going to hurt more yeah. people and will not prevent abortions in their states. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I, I completely agree with some of the, with most of the statements that, that you made right there. Um, and so kind of shifting over the focus um, to the pandemic that uh, the COVID-19 pandemic that, that's still been going on. Um, how have you seen the pandemic sort of affect uh you know, cancer or cancer treatment um, for those like, especially like in the earlier stages of the pandemic when people really couldn't go out. Um, how did you see that sort of affect hospitals and like uh, oncology? Well, I mean, I think just like in other places of medicine before the vaccine, it was a very, it was a very scary time, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, and even today, you know, I used to be the type of physician who would sit close to patients, especially if I was delivering bad news, mm-hmm. hold their hand when I was, you know, when they were struggling and, and visits with a hug, all of that's gone. You yeah. can't do that now. It's, you know, you know, it's hard to convey emotion behind a mask and mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very difficult to tell people bad news via telehealth. Mm-hmm. But I think those are things that are staying. Um, I, I think, you know, just like the rest of uh, the country, people with cancer have really responded to the vaccine availability and to COVID-19 in very different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I have several people who refuse to get vaccinated, oh. despite the fact they're living with cancer, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it's it takes a lot just to talk to them and trying to address rather than convince them, just address their, their reasons for not being vaccinated, I think is really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the major thing post having the vaccine is that we're just seeing COVID evolve and mutate. Um, yeah. And I think 
I worry about the resources in healthcare as this thing continues. I mean, I think you're, we have seen burnout. We've seen a lot of people leave medicine, oh. even in oncology. Um, mm-hmm. And it's still happening. There's this you know, big transition away from patient care into other fields of medicine, you know, either clinical research or going into industry, mm-hmm. but um, it, it's gonna be an issue going forward. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think most people do realize that uh, physicians and, and, you know, sort of everyone um, in medical field, whether it be like nurses um, or nurse practitioners um, have just been, like you sort of said, burnt out from like the amount of, especially in the earlier stages of the pandemic, where, where really resources were really, really limited. Um, so yeah, so thank you so much for, uh, being on the podcast today. Um, do you have, uh, any other, um, you know, advice that you want to give to teens, um, you know, looking into medicine, um, anything that you want to add before we end? Yeah, I would say that I, um, would do it all over again. Um, I think the door opened and I'm glad I walked through it, but I think it's also important to know that I had a plan if it wouldn't have opened. And I think I would have been happy either way. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, for for your group, you know, those in high school, just, you know, um, just realize that your life is gonna happen. It's gonna <laughs> happen, you know? And I think preparing for a future you see for yourself is a really important thing, but don't forget to smell the roses either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's great advice. Um, so yeah, so thank you and stay tuned guys for uh, the next episode.